And welcome to TNT, the technology and things podcast. Your host, Paul Ferraro, is a former IT exec and currently a technology advisor. Jeff Kruger, a fellow technology enthusiast, is the co-host. They both spent many years working for a Fortune 500 company and are both passionate about leadership, technology and the community. All right. Well, welcome to another edition of the Technology and Things podcast. I am excited to be joined by two of my colleagues today from Evotech. Uh, first, firstly, uh, David Kotlarowski is our field CTO and co-lead of our network practice. Hello, David. Hey, guys. How's How it going? Doing? Yeah, good to have you on. And also by someone that you guys have heard of, heard from before on our podcast, that's Matt Stamper. How's everyone doing? Great to be here. Yeah, thank you, Matt. So you guys all know Matt. Matt's uh, an executive advisor and chief information security officer for Evotech. And uh, he's been on our podcast, I think, three or four times. Um, so uh, he's becoming quite the regular. We're going to have to start paying him soon. Um, <laughs> We, and we have no budget for that, so I'm just kidding, Matt. <laughs> we'll work for bourbon. <laughs> we could do that. We could do that. So, exactly. uh, so on our uh, program today, we're going to have Niall Brown. He is the Senior Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer for Palo Alto Networks. And um, he has had uh, quite a career already, and, uh, and so we're going to talk to him about all kinds of stuff. Before we get into that, though, um, we are going to... Uh, we have a pretty cool uh, little giveaway we're going to be doing today. Um, it's actually a Am Amplify Alien Wi-Fi router. Um, it's one of the nice ones. It's Wi-Fi 6, and uh, you, can, you can mesh it together with another one. And um, so keep listening, and, and you'll figure out how to win that later on in the program. Um, what else? So uh, back to back to Niall. So Niall has had, I mean, he, he's currently at Palo Alto Networks. He's been, he, I think he joined the company in January of this year. And prior to that, he's been at companies like Workday and, um, uh, you know, banks and a number of different companies. Uh, he was at Dell for a while years ago. So he's, he's worked both as a security engineer uh, he's been an instructor, and he's been a, um, a CISO for, for quite a few years um, at, at a, a number of firms in uh, Silicon Valley. So pretty, so pretty jazzed to have him on. We, we could say someone uh, who's been in the trenches. I think so. All I right. Think he's, I think he's been in the trenches, and he's been in the ivory tower as well. No. <laughs> okay. It's good to have perspective. <laughs> Um, so what, uh, he'll be joining us shortly. I'm interested, maybe Matt, why don't you start us off? What do you, what do you think, um, what are you most interested to hear from, uh, or talk about with, uh, with Niall today? You know, I, I think his background and his experience, one managing your own security program and now being with a uh, preeminent security manufacturer and vendor in the space is getting his perspective and vision uh, especially around things like automation within our security architecture, how we deal with the chronic shortage of qualified staff and, and kind of security analysts, engineers, architects 
that all organizations are, are facing and, and would love to hear his perspective on those kind of broad issues. Yeah. Just uh, how do you, how do you help security operators with the complexity, right? Yeah. There's so much complexity exactly. right now that it's, it's really, it's really a daunting task. And one of the things that, that I, uh, I tend to note is if our responses to security issues are being handled manually, the game has already been lost. We have to automate. Our adversaries are automated. They're highly tooled. They're extraordinarily effective. They're using really sophisticated attack techniques that we need to be able to respond to in a very automated, high-fidelity way. And, and so I think it'll be interesting to hear kind of his vision for that, especially with the uh, purchase of Demisto and some of the SOAR activity uh, that is kind of now becoming integral to their broader kind of portfolio. So I'm really looking forward to that discussion. Where do these adversaries get these tools, Matt? Are they buying off the shelf products? Are they building everything themselves? What, what, what is? Usually it's just eBay. <laughs> So it, it, it does depend. I mean, there's, there's clearly um, techniques like using PowerShell and Bash and other things, kind of the proverbial living off the land mm-hmm. that do come into play. So, so the tools may already be resident or existent within a, um, a target's environment. In other words, they just go in and start taking advantage of, of legitimate processes, legitimate functions within the organization. Clearly, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of state-sponsored or state-sponsored um, engagements with a third-party adversarial actor. So it might not be a nation-state per se, but they've outsourced tool development and some of the, uh, the attacking, if you will, to a third party. And there's kind of a little bit of a related party relationship between and among these entities to be aware of. But when you have nation-states tooling up to take on individual enterprises and organizations. There's clearly an asymmetry there that we need to be aware of. Yeah. Got it. All right. Well, I think we've got uh, Mr. Mr. Brown in the waiting room, so I'm going to let him in and we'll get going. Hey, Niall. Hello. Good afternoon. Welcome on to our program. Thank you very much for the invite. It's, it's good to, uh, it's good to, to see you again. And, uh, and we're looking, really looking forward to the conversation today. Thanks. Real Demetrium person. So well, yeah, <laughs> we, we should do some, we, we'll do some quick introductions. So, cause you, you actually met, uh, you met David last time, but Matt wasn't, uh, you didn't meet Matt. So Matt Stamper is uh, an executive advisor and chief information officer or chief information security officer for, uh, for us at Evotech. Hey Matt. Very, very nice to meet you. And, and uh, I, I had an opportunity to write the CISO desk reference guy that was on the Palo Alto security canon for a while. And then it just recently got moved over to, uh, I think, Ohio State. So um, in, enjoyed always kind of the Palo Alto security canon and all the great books that were referenced there. So really excited about the, uh, the discussion today. Excellent. Cool. So, so now maybe uh, to kind of get us started here, uh, we, we, did, we did talk you up a little bit. Uh, before you joined us, uh, so we, we've we've already been uh, singing your praises, but I'd love to kind of hear from from uh, from your perspective also, just a little bit about your background and and kind of uh, how you came to be at Palo Alto Networks. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I've worked in in cybersecurity for like wow, about twenty. 20 it seems like yesterday, but about twenty years ago, twenty years at this point, and then I've been in Silicon Valley as kind of a CSO of cloud providers for the past about sixteen. 
Uh, for this, I was at Domo and I was at Workday where I was their, their chief security officer. So at Workday, it was like, how do we secure the, as the cloud when people are moving to the cloud? And then as a chief trust officer, how do we convince some of the largest companies in the world to trust us with, with their most sensitive data? When the opportunity to, to join Palo Alto uh, came up, I, I jumped at it. And it was purely because of you know two things. One is basic and the leadership team, but also on top of that, more importantly, it was the products themselves. So it's like almost like a kid in, 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 in a playground. So you get to play with basically some of the coolest toys in the world, some of the coolest products itself, and you really get them to push them to the end degree. So in other words, basically, we, in Palo Alto Networks, we've got the concept of customer one. So customer one is ourselves. So we leverage the tools as a customer, and we really try to push it to the end degree on how can we leverage it on more containers? How can we do more integrations? And how can we push those best practices both into the product and then help our customers succeed as well. So for me, it was a, it was um, it was a great opportunity to to join the largest cybersecurity company in the world, and then to be part of a, a, that cybersecurity uh, journey. I got to tell you, I'm turning green with envy because it just yeah. kind of dawned on me that the environment that you have is having been a practitioner with these other organizations before. You had an opportunity to see where certain security capabilities and tools fell short. And now you're in an environment which is fundamentally, hey, we need this. Let's go build it. <laughs> you know, here's, here's a couple of, of great things that we can do or integrations between and among tools. And, and having kind of the, the proverbial knuckles bloodied from a practitioner perspective, now moving into the environment you are now must be inordinately rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. And the good, so the good thing about this, A, you get to play with the tools. And then being on top of that, you help to drive the journey, which is great because yeah. the, the, the team is very much open to feedback. So it's like with XOR, maybe if we had this feature internally and then suddenly instead of it being used internally within the SOC, SOC team, it becomes part of the product from there. Or if we had an integration between like Prisma Access uh, and basically uh, XDR, then this will be, this is how we'd like to do within the SOC or within the InfoSec team. And then very quickly, it kind of ties back into into uh, into the product itself, so you know it, it's a great opportunity for not only to be kind of part of the journey, uh, but also basically help you know to a small part basically help drive a small bit of the journey on. And, and there's nothing more satisfying than like you come up with an ID, and then suddenly two minutes later you log into the UI and you can see it there. And you're not the only person who's using this. Now there's seventy three thousand other customers out there that are all seeing that same feature and starting to to being realized from there. And, and certainly for my team. Um, I would say our InfoSec team is certainly one of the best in the industry, super smart, super engaged across the board, and they're all very kind of product centric. So I, I'm always amazed like every single day when they're like, oh, by the way, now here's how we use our product. And this is the way we did this configuration. This is the way this worked. And, and, and it's great to see like, it's great to see like security practitioners loving the products they're using, looking mm -hmm. like how do we continuously improve those? And then how do we, how do we continuously kind of to get how to continuously get to get like better over time. And we've tried to certainly for, for most of the security team as well as make them customer centric. So if somebody wants to know about uh, XOR and how it works, basically, i.e. Demisto, we now have a, the service owner that's technically within certain within InfoSec, basically, that uses that tool on a daily basis. And they're always more than happy to chat with the customer to say, by the way, you know, I know you've leveraged our tool, but internally within our SOC, this is how we use it on a, on a day to day basis. Love it. Absolutely love it. That's pretty cool because, uh, yeah, sometimes it, it, it seems like 
it, it can be really difficult to get to people that are actually using the tool, you know, in, in you know, in a, in a company that makes software and you want to talk to maybe the people in it or, or in security that are, that are actually using it, not, not a product manager or something, but like, I, I want to find the person that's actually responsible for this in your company. And, uh, that's really neat that you guys are, are, are getting those folks out and talking to customers. Yeah. And I mean, I would say even like, you know, this morning we had a call basically and we had our CEO and the cash basically talking to the customer about here's our strategy. And then I joined after that, then I was talking about basically here's our, our kind of cybersecurity strategy. Here's how we're thinking about using products and really like how are we moving to a platform? How do we move to an automation? And then also from our point of view, we spent a tremendous amount of time, you know, talking with um, obviously like partners like, you know, Evitex. I mean, from your point of view, we've obviously very much worked with, 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 um, with Evitex and, and how do we, you've onboarded some of the largest Palo Alto Net products in, in the industry globally um, and, and really kind of building that program and building that partnership for that continuous feedback. Because otherwise what happens is, you know, you leverage a product, you turn it on, and unless basically people are from all parties are looking at the product and continuously improving it, a year later it becomes shelfware and then nobody uses that. And we, that, and we all know basically hundreds or dozens of tools that we've all bought as, as CSOs uh, with <laughs> aspirations and either A, they just haven't worked or else B, basically, you know, you're talking to people and, and it's falling on, 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 on dumb ears. In other words, basically, you know, you keep on pointing out issues but they keep, they never, they never evolve the product. And that's always a, like a tremendous disappointment, especially for every product you leverage, you've got to take, it takes maybe one, two, three years to fully integrate that product. And imagine if you've got to throw out the tool after two or three years and start again. I mean, that can set your security program back yeah. you know, years across the board. Yeah. And in security, two to three years is, is a whole lifetime. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Especially most CSOs last for like a year and a half. I think that's the <laughs> right. So, it's right. like two, uh, two, uh, two, two dog lives at that point. <laughs> You're almost on your way out, Niall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we hope you are enjoying the episode. For your chance to win an Alien Amplify Wi-Fi 6 router, please go to evotech.com slash TNT28 and enter the code ALIEN before October 2nd, 2020. And now, back to the episode. Thanks for listening. One of the things that... that you know, we, we talked about, uh, we've, we've talked about in the past is about, you know, this concept of the perimeter moving. And I think, you know, uh, that, and, and you've said this about, you've said, you know, follow the data. And I, I really like that. You know, maybe you can expand, expand on that a little bit for us. What does that mean to follow the data? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and this is, you know, the classical issue of Paul, you know, where's your data? And you, you always think it's in that dark and data center where there's firewalls around it. And maybe in the old days it was sort of thing, but you know, as you and I know, basically, what happened, it was in the old days. But then the problem is, what happened is people wanted access to your data, and then in front, so then it was researchers and engineers and managers, and and then for the most part, when they were accessing the data, they would view it, and sometimes they view the data, and sometimes they would copy it, and if they're copying it, they're copying out their laptop, and now they're going home, and now the data isn't protected by these multi-million firewall and security infrastructures. It's on basically a thousand dollar laptop in the trunk of your car where anybody can steal it itself or you click on a link at home on a Friday, Friday night and then suddenly your laptop is owned. So a lot of times basically we build this perimeter to protect 
I would almost say protect the building itself. We were never really protecting the data. We were protecting the building. And then the issue with the building is basically is the people in the building, they weren't in there for long. They were only in there for like maximum a third, a third of a day, a business day. So they'd be in there eight hours a day and 16 hours a day, they were out of there. So what's often happening is basically with all the security infrastructure tools process looking inwards uh, at BCR perimeter, what was inside the building, when everything was happening outside that building itself. And we weren't following the data on the laptops, on the partners, on any, any of these infrastructure from there. So the great thing about, about basically this new paradigm and this new change is basically it's forced us, and we've talked about for years about deprimatization, uh, but this has really forced us basically now start following that data and really protecting the data. And for the most part, where's the data? It's still it's still basically within your data center itself and still your traditional controls that apply. But now the vast majority of data is on the laptop. So either basically look at my laptop or your laptop. If we're in customer support, we're accessing customer data. If we're in financial services, we're actually basically like uh, uh, public or base, we're accessing basically financial data. If we're in healthcare, we're accessing healthcare and HIPAA data from there. So because of that now, it's like, you need, really need to focus on the person and then that data. And that's really kind of making sure you've got the right controls in place, basically, to, to protect that data from there. And by that mean, you follow the data. So if it's in the database, that's where it's, if it's on my laptop, you need to make sure, basically, in our case, we use like XDR, basically, to do it for, to manage the endpoints itself, to look for indications of compromise from there, to lock down laptops, to do forensics from there. And then every time I open the, the lid of my laptop in the morning, straight away we connect into a Prisma Access. What happens there then is all my traffic flows into Prisma Access from my laptop into Prisma Access. And from there, it's always the next generation firewalls, the DLP, uh, basically wildfire, all of those tools and technologies deploy. So if I'm sitting at my office, or I'm sitting at basically at my home desk itself, it doesn't make a difference. It's the exact same universal level of controls that apply. So I think the really good thing about basically our new model is basically is we're not going back. In other words, basically, it's not as if basically we deprimatize this and suddenly we're just going to ignore the endpoints anymore. This is really kind of forced security to, to evolve. And it's not evolving over like a three or four or five year journey. It's evolved overnight to how do we protect the endpoint? Plus as well, I mean, it's the, the on-prem, it's the endpoint. And then the endpoint is like, well, where do I access my data? And then if you look, follow your traffic, you're not going back to on-prem anymore for anything because there's nothing left there. Now yeah. everything is cloudified, either yeah. software as a service, infrastructure, platform as a service, and software as a service. I just looked at like my Octoport of the last thing, and we had something like 250 SaaS apps that were out there from that end. We, we right. infrastructure is basically... Um, everything from AWS to GCP to Azure to Alibaba and everything in between. And then basically all of the other services. So, so now it's really basically about like, you know, how do you protect your data endpoint? But also very important, you've got to protect your data on the cloud either. And the, generally the way you protect data, whether something's like infrastructure as a service, AWS versus Workday, it's totally different. So infrastructure, mm -hmm. obviously, you manage it basically the, the systems operating systems, whether SaaS basically, it's, you're really managing just your customer instance. So it's really about making sure is that, like, do you have the right, you can, uh, the problem is you can say, listen, I'm gonna create, we're moving to cloud and you create a policy, but then no one's really gonna follow the policy. So then you say, well, no one's following, following the policy, let's do a training program. So now you've got a policy and now you've got a training program, but people are still none the wiser. And then you say, well, what, 
this isn't working. Now we're going to create a standard. So now you've got a you've got policy training and a standard, but in the in the interim basically, you've got tens of thousands basically of AWS accounts out there. You have hundreds of SaaS applications. And the SaaS word, the standard looks great basically to your compliance team, your auditor, but it's never implemented. So for us, we spend a lot of time, certainly for all of our SaaS applications, we use Prisma SaaS to manage the Prisma SaaS, everything from passwords and our security controls, our people copying medical data on Box, our people putting passwords on Slack, and then the hundreds of other controls. And then for us, we use Prisma Cloud, then we point out basically all of our cloud infrastructure for AWS and GCP. And we're continuously looking to find out basically like, is somebody enabling disabling encryption? Is somebody, what about the VPC flow logs? How do we control that? And we try to do that in real time because the issue is engineering isn't going to security anymore to ask them, can, you know, can we do X, Y, and Z? They're doing it in real time, hundreds of thousands yeah. of ephemeral containers, application yeah. services are being kicked right, left and center. So we need to be part of that critical path so that when they spin up basically another uh, VPC or when they spin up another AWS account, we don't really care because it's part of that, it's part of that infrastructure as a code, it's part of that cloudified service from there. And then if it doesn't meet their requirement, if it doesn't meet the security requirements, then it goes straight back to that that the product owner to look at that and say, oh by the way, um, uh, that AWS account that you that you configured, it doesn't have MFA turned on. And it's like, wow, well, if it hasn't turned MFA turned on, multi-factor authentication, then let's just turn it on. So it's really about shifting left, putting the right controls in place, exactly. and then shifting left. So it's a, you give the right data to the product owner so they can make the right, the right decisions from their perspective. Yeah, I, I was fascinated. I was at reInvent a couple of years ago before all this uh, hiatus with COVID-19 and looking at how like Lambda functions are being used to kind of automate that. And as kind of a segue, um, especially I, I was a former analyst at Gartner and I covered uh, Demisto and SOAR from primarily an incident response perspective and, and as well some of the BAS tools that I saw you've got some uh, familiarity with. But would love both David and I maybe to have you kind of talk about your vision related to automation and how critical it is that we automate our security architectures and our security responses and, and hear your insights on that. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So and the way I would see this space is it's not as if like, it's not as if we have a choice there, as we all know, so we have to do this. And, and if you look at like, you know, you've got to do two things in security. One is you've got to do a platform. And so we'll start with the platform component. And why is that? Well, everyone else is doing platforms. So if you look at like engineering and operations, you know, they decided, listen, we can't have, we can't buy tens of thousands of servers. And for the tens of thousands of servers, we can't buy them. And then we, we get them delivered and then we ship them and then we rack them across the board. And then we put the OS on them from there. And then we put in the RG45 cable and then we start managing that service. And then everything changes next week. And we're like, oh crap, did we buy the right things? Or how do we configure that service? We just can't do that anymore. And they were, and then what happened is engineering would come along. Oh, by the way, we've got this big event happening on like reInvent on a, on a Friday night. We want 10,000 more servers, but we only want to pay C4 a week or three or four days. And it's like, well, no, it will take me at least six months to get the servers. And then once you buy them, you buy them, you've got them forever. So operations and engineering said, well, the only way we can solve this is by moving to the cloud. And by moving to cloud, by basically by building a common platform whereby everything talks to each other, everything is API, and everything kind of communicates across the board. So engineering- Everything is code. 
It, exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and that's exactly what's happening, basically, is basically engineering operations have said, listen, we're going a platform as a service. We're basically, what we're doing is our infrastructure service, and that's the way forward. And if you look at what security has done, security is still almost in the mindset of, we're not going to do this, guys. We're happy with the way we're doing it. And the way we're doing it currently is, you know, one of the recent surveys I saw out there, there's like 70, 70, I think it was 7,500 security tools and products out there, which is chaotic. The average yeah. enterprise customer has like 75 uh, SaaS or 75 security tools internally. And then those 75, never the twain shall meet, or they don't talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like all siloed. Exactly. It's like having 75 people in a room that are speaking different languages. It just doesn't work. So now what's happening is, is that you can't have 75 anymore. The only way, and the problem is you can't hire people. You know, it's not like, you know, you can hire, let's, let's solve this by moving from 75 to 80 tools. Let's hire another three people. Because if you, if you, the, the, the definition of insanity is doing the same every single day and expecting a different result. So you can't buy more tools because you're just going to cause more of a mess. And then you can't hire more people because even if you had the money, basically, there aren't the people out there. So the only yeah. way to do this, basically, you've got to come up with a platform. And that's certainly very much like our strategy and Palo Alto Network strategy is like, how do we create a platform, basically, whereby all of the products and tools, they all talk to each other. They're all on a common platform. Everything from basically from XDR and the endpoint to XOR for automation to next generation firewall to Zingbox, everything is that platform model. And then the benefit there, if it's a platform and it to everything talks to each other, it's only then you can do automation. So, and I would see this as the brains of Palo Alto Networks is kind of XOR because that's where all of our automation happens across the board. So we can take an instance whereby you know, if something happens on a laptop, instead of a human having to look at it, now basically because everything is on the same platform, it's very easy for the platform to talk out to XOR. XOR basically can run basically hundreds of analysis against it, run playbooks. And as part of that, it can pull all the data it needs. Everything from, if I click on, 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 a, on a, a, a compromise side from that end, well, now it's compromised. What time did it get compromised? What's the name of the process? Did anybody else in Palo Alto Networks click on that process? From the time Niall clicked on that process, when did, did he laterally talk to any of those services? Did he go to websites? The websites that he go, went to, are they considered malicious or not? That process sent it to virus told and look at like, what's the risk score? So it can do like literally hundreds of calculations per second. And the benefit mm -hmm. of that basically, you automate it. And, and one example we share, you know, again, is I think we're very transparent about how we, own, we use our own tools is like last month we looked at XOR and we decided, we said, well, how many FDEs did we, did we save by using automation to XOR? And the response basically from uh, uh, Ellie who runs basically our XOR integration in SOC was, you know, we've saved like 9.2 FTEs. Now, I'm not sure we got, we got the 0.2 of an FTE, but that's reducing <laughs> products of the product. So it's really kind of like automation, automation, automation. So I, I think the only way going forward is you can't fix this by buying more product. You can't fix this by hiring more people. The only way you can solve this is- Is automate. Exactly. Automate is what engineering is doing and oper what operations are doing is platform. And I think security is behind we're not that far behind, but this is the only way to, to help solve this problem, especially as you know, Matt, the corporate sprawl out there is huge at this point. You can't, you can't chase the, fix this by having meetings, manual checkpoints. It has to be automated and it has to be a platform. 
even just to keep up with basically what we currently have, never mind what's happening coming down the line with like tens of billions of uh, like IoT devices. Right. And, um, you know, <clears throat> you know, as you mentioned, it, it's really difficult to find uh, good security practitioners, you know, analysts to work in the SOC. And really nobody wants to sit there and kind of look at alerts, right? I mean, they come in by tens of thousands a second. So, you know, uh, can you speak a little bit as to how automation, you know, keeps uh, your folks interested in what they're doing and, uh, you know, keeps them engaged, right? Great point. Yeah, great question. I mean, and that's the big thing, like, you know, it's SOC and NOC is always seen as a stepping stone. Like, like I'm going to get hired in, but I'm going to do two years in SOC and then I'm going to get out across the board and then do the same in the NOC sort of thing. And maybe it might be hard into InfoSec or whatever else from there. And, and because of that, you get junior people. And then because you get junior people, basically, you don't get a lot of analytics part there. Plus, if they do succeed two years from now, they're out the door sort of thing. So after a yeah. year, they're out anyway sort of thing. So we have about, um, for our SOC, we're not building our SOC based on people. It's purely on automation from there. So we have about 10, 11 people within, the, within our SOC. Again, you add XOR into that, that's another nine people, so about 19 people in total. Uh, last year, we had uh, nine people. Uh, the year before, we probably had nine people. So we're not looking to fix this with people. We're looking to fix this with automation across the board. And, and oftentimes, it's, it's, it's a model of eight, like, it's something having a boat, like, you know, like, how long is your boat? Like, is it 14 feet? Is it 15? Is it 20 foot? Like, so it's that the bragging rights, the longer your boat you have, the richer you are. And then the, bigger, the more people you have in the SOC, the, the bigger your security team is and the better you are as a CSO sort of thing. And our model is the exact opposite. Like, how do we get it to an efficient model? So we have about basically 10, 11 people on the SOC. In the last few years, we've lost zero people there. In other words, wow. we've got a 100% retention across the board. And the main benefit from that is they like what they're doing. Imagine like if I was working in the SOC and suddenly what would happen there from that end is uh, like an app basically lost to that or kicked on a process, then I'd run my manual playbooks across the board and it would take me basically two hours. And at the end of two hours, it's like, yeah, no, I didn't do anything wrong. And then study what happens there is like, then David clicks on something, like, oh no, this is happening again. And I run through the playbooks and then Paul, you click on something or Nathan clicks on something. And then suddenly like at the end of eight hours, like, I'm like, I'm just gonna get out of here. I'm just not doing this anymore sort of thing. Right always the problem from, from there it's it's almost you're looking for the, the people who want to would want to work in a factory line installing like capacitors across the board so for us basically what we do is because we everything's a platform that talks to each other because we've got xor up here as being kind of the automation component the vast majority of things happen in in, in xor in automation in cortex data like so one example like every three months we look at it and we, we analyze about uh, analyze about 30, you know, sorry, about 10, million, 10 billion different alerts over three months. And as we fund them to the different products, we get down to about 2,000 events whereby we need to XOR them across the board. Of those basically 1,500, XOR can automate it to the end degree and do everything. And then for 500 of those 10 billion, basically, we would have, um, we need engineers to have the SOC engineers to look at that. So if you do the maths and you start correlating that, that down, that's only about four events or five or four, four events per week, basically, for the person. And you're thinking, man, that's not, and even then, like, it's not a tremendous amount of work because they're looking at a report that has all, that has enriched all the data from dozens of sources. So 
they don't even have to run the playbooks. It's just they're glancing at it and say, yeah, interesting, not interesting. And the question is, what are they doing the rest of the time? And what we do is we work off BC model of, um, of, of a third, a third, a third. So the first third of the time is, is working on the alerts and chasing those ones down. Uh, and we're religious about BC. Don't give us alert don't, unless we physically or logically need to do something with it, which, because otherwise there's no value from there. A third of the time basically is spent on hunting. So the SOC team is continuously going out okay. like, hunting across the road and they generate, it's, it's super fun and they really enjoy it. And a third of it, part of this basically is we want the SOC to be empowered to own the tools. So we have basically for each of the tools, we have an owner for XOR. So within the SOC, everyone's a service owner. So they service owner for XOR, somebody else is in a service owner for next generation farmable, somebody else is a service owner for uh, Prisma SAS. So that way basically they have ownership of the products. Third of time is hunting, and then a third of time basically is just your traditional alerting. So with that mix and match, it's a pretty interesting dynamic. Your day is never the same. It's not as if basically with basically the five of us and the cold, I'm looking at the five of the same things that happen every single time. Everything has automated at the end degree. And it's usually like in a SOC, the worst thing is that like, you know, it's 3 a.m. and you get a call and you're like, oh my God, I've got to like, log into the SOC, which is the worst. Um, we're really religious about basically like, don't, you know, because we're, we're, we're a 10, 10 person SOC, don't send us an alert uh, unless we need to do something with that. And, and the SOC is very good. Like we changed our processes about two or three weeks ago, whereby the SOC was suddenly getting a page at 3 a.m. in the morning and suddenly they were very vocal back to say, hey, you know, this is not good. Like, why are we being paid at 3 a.m.? There's nothing we can do. So we're, we really try to tie it back into don't, don't give an alert to a human unless they can actually do something. And security generally is pretty weak about that. It's like, like it's if engineering and shipping code is like, you guys, you can't ship code unless security looks at the code. Or you can't basically ship your major release until basically somebody like a data sheriff goes in there and approves it from security. There's no value for those checklists from there. So same thing with our model, basically, it's very much a case of like, you know, unless they're, it, they're, it's truly valuable for a person to be looking at it and providing value, forget about it. Everything else should be platformed across the board and everything else should be kind of automated from there. Yeah, I mean, uh, sorry, Matt, I was just gonna comment that uh, the, my favorite thing here is, is the service ownership. I think that uh, that when when, when people have something that they can, they can be responsible for and they can, you know, set the direction or at least be able to take the feedback in and, and make it better. I mean, there's so much they can get inspired about and get and, and, and do uh, rather than just be like, well, you know, that's not mine. I don't, I don't own it. And I think the other thing you talked about too was, was doing those reviews. So those, those service owners then, do like a monthly review where anybody can show up to it and they can say, here's, here's how this service is running. Here's, here's what, um, here's what we're doing, you know, in the future, here's kind of some of the issues that are going on or whatever it might be and, and have a forum to be able to, to talk through those, uh, those services. Yeah. I mean, that's great. Cause oftentimes what happens is you buy a tool in the shop where it's not as if you're not using the right features, you're not even upgrading this to the box. So the box is basically months or years out of date. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a horrible model. So the way we have it, you know, to your point, basically, you have a service owner, they own the service, and they're responsible for keeping up to date, deploying the right features, and then making sure the business is universally deploying that from there. And what we have there is we have like these monthly service reviews, and they're run by, by Matt, who runs our, who runs our SOC. 
And then Eric, who's our like VP of operations, and they, they both do a great job of pushing that service kind of owner mentality. And the way it works is basically, if I'm a service owner, I just like work, I work on like, what are the core set of services that I'm providing to the business? And then you simply document what those services like, like what services am I, am I providing that? You document that. And then the next thing is like, for those three or four services, like what, how do you measure those? So one is could be, if you're managing like a thousand firewalls, metric one is, are they all managed by Panorama? You know, metric two could be basically, are they all in the right version? Metric three could be basically, do they have the right features turned on? Level four is like, is the business using the features in the right way? Level five could be basically that um, from the from the rules they're deploying, are all the firewalls going through a formal change management process? So in other words, it's like, what's the service and what are the metrics that we measure over time? And then it's yep. no fun presenting it to yourself. And it's no fun presenting <laughs> it to the boss either, sort of thing. so you want to make it interactive. Yeah. So what we do is basically we invite everybody in information security to every service review. Um, and we initially thought, like, how many people would attend? Because it's like, like, like why would I attend basically a service review for, for uh, Christmas status or a service review basically for threat intel or a service review for vendor management review? And, and because I don't work in that area. And we found that there was a high degree of interest basing on like, what are the other teams doing and what are the other functions doing and what, how are they using those products? So generally when they send out the information, when they send it out to the, the information security aliens, uh, you would think very few people would attend, but it's the opposite. In some cases you have like 50 or 60% of information security turning up and like this, nobody's forcing them. No one's telling you you've got to turn up. The only person that needs to turn up is, is the person who's presenting. But for the most part, they'll all turn up. And give an example, we've got like, you know, our, our monthly threat and tell uh, um, uh, service view next or tomorrow, basically talking about basically the tools and threat and tell. And this is what we saw across Palo Alto networks in the last, over the last month. And we'll see basically, I would say, security is going to turn up for that one. So it's the great thing, as you point out, Paul, is if you can instill the sense of ownership, on, they own the service, and they're empowered in the service, and they're presenting basically to a wider group. It, it's you know it's really good, and it, you know it's either, good thing is they're presenting, and then also they're getting feedback. And it's like oh by the way, it's like it, um, it's like you know, oh by the way, David, basically on, on that one, I like the way you did this, but if you if your tool did that, then wouldn't it be an awful lot better? And then the lights start going on from that end. So I think that, that the good thing about that is is that way at the end of there, there's no. There's no there's no shelfware out there. It's like like if you have a tool and like if you're doing a service review against it, it it's pretty apparent on a month to month service review basically. Like you know like is it successful or not? And then people look at it and say, by the way, like this service review is really bad. And it's like, well, <laughs> either A is they're doing a bad service review, or else B is because like the product is really bad. And then if the product is really bad, it's better off just cutting that product and then moving on. Then you know, hanging on to the product for three, four years, and then you wait for finance to pull out and say, oh, by the way, security, you've got too many tools and products. And then you're like, well, who owns this product? And it's like, well, we bought it for three years, three years ago on a three-year deal, and uh, but it's still there sort of thing. Yeah, you know, can we get rid of it? Oh, we can. So now basically, it's now like you're only running the tools and services that the, that the security organization wants to run. And if you can't find a service owner for a pro product and you can't do service reviews, then it's a case of just well then products. your tools and services are running you <laughs> 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 yeah. exactly 
We exactly. talked about the platform and we talked about automation and you're dead right. The, the, the third component I didn't talk about this, that's the, that's the, the state secret basically is the machine burning the people. That's level three. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting uh, as I kind of see as a, someone who's coming from more from a networking background, I see how, you know, automation is breaking down certain silos, right? You always had the network guys and then there were the security guys. And if it's not a network issue, then you kind of throw it over the fence. But here, what I'm seeing is there's a lot of integration now as we start building these more kind of like DevOps type teams, you're seeing more integration where, you know, I've seen things in the industry where if the firewall saw something, you can automate a response all the way down to a network piece of equipment and take care of it right there, which means now that you didn't have to involve a security guy, you didn't have to involve the network guy, meantime, the resolution is significantly shorter, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's, you know, as we talked about this for a lot of our customers, you know, oh, this is just so big. I'm using all these SaaS applications. I'm, I'm in the cloud. How do I get a hold and control of all of this stuff? And to your point, exactly. I think automation is really the only way to go. And people, I think, would have to change, right? I mean, if you were doing this, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and you are not interested in automation, is I don't think there's going to be future for you in technology. Yeah, no, And like, so very similar to like, my background was very similar with like firewall architecture for years. So I'm very familiar with basically like your RG45 cables behind there. <laughs> you, you go from rack to rack and you're like, where does that red cable go? Where does that blue cable go? Right. And you come, up, you come out from below behind the rack and like your nice suit is basically covered in dirt and dust and spider webs and all the rest. And it was super fun because like you could chase down the network infrastructure. And now basically that doesn't exist. It's all like infrastructure as a code. Um, so the big issue there is like, you know, when you look at AC, that it's like, well, how do you do that? So, and we, we hit it from the two points of view. One is the shift left. So shift left for, for secure CICD is obviously, if someone's writing a vulnerability, you want to fix it like in static or dynamic or RAS before it's shipped into prod. And the same thing, but that's good for development. But then the big issue is for firewalls, it, it's different. It's, it's firewalls is like, what do you do? When you log into the firewall, what, what, what? Yeah, yeah. Just log into the console in the firewall and we've got 7,000 rules and add down 7,000 <laughs> rules sort of thing. And that's the model. Like it's the dark ages from there. So now to your point, David, it's the only way you can succeed is to automate that. And so by that, Absolutely. it's infrastructure and code. So rather than basically just something like into the UI, everything then is true, like Terraform scripts across the board. So as the scripts are running and pushed in, in, in from there, now you can do, because the problem is before somebody would log into the firewall and they're making UI change. And because they're making UI change, there's no way in hell you understand basically, like, should 7001 be allowed to do that? Yeah. Now, if you're doing it on coding, then you can do programmatic analysis of that language to look at and say, oh, by the way, should you have any, any accept or should you create like a service? Should you do like port, like let's say 443, rather than using an app ID across the board? So we're really trying to push that like shift left model. So people don't touch boxes, uh, code yeah. rolls in, and then scripting kind of runs like run, runs in there, which is really good. And then the second part from there is that once it's in, you know, at that point, hopefully it's a clean, clean, it's a clean version sort of thing. But it's not always. So some of these say, well, somebody may have like done it and opened like SSH or like RDP up from the internet from there, which is kind of a huge issue. So we've tried to do through XOR and our cloud software is automated. So in Palo Alto networks, like if anybody opens up like you know SSH or RDP from the from the network. What happens like within milliseconds is we'll log into the firewall 
will disable that rule and will push that kind of across universally. And then we'll open an XOR ticket, we'll ping the AC, the person who shipped the code, and we'll say, mm-hmm. oh, by the way, should you have done that? And then we'll ping their manager as well. So rather than <laughs> the, you know, the SSH rule that's open for six months, right. it's exactly. You go back to, and it's the beautiful thing with that, then you go back to like the person who made the decision, like the end user, and like it could be something abstract, like, you know, it's could be like partner network going to DMZ on port, um, uh, let's say port, uh, like port 80. And it's like, you don't, none of us in the room know if that's a good or bad rule. So great thing about this is XOR, you take it, then it's like the rules going into our, our DMZ from partner network. That's kind of a higher level risk. We don't know if it's valid or not. Then XOR goes back to the user and the user then, similar like a, like a Chase credit card, like has your phone, have you used your credit card down Home Depot for $540? You get a text message, yes, no. Same thing as well with XOR, you know, you get a, a text message to say, did you create this rule and is it valid? Yes, done. Maybe you put in like one line justification and then that's it done from that end. Or if you click on no or no, or you put in or put in a validation that's not valid, then you can easily go to the next level to manager. So. And it's really about like, how do we, like we're, we're, we're starting to do a good half decent job basically we're automating ourselves out of software code. And now the next thing to your point is how do we automate ourselves out of, out of, out of networks as well. Mm-hmm. One area that, that I think is really interesting, one with all this emphasis on automation and integration, kind of the analogy is, you know, an automatic pilot for a plane or, you know, these autonomous vehicles it presupposes some of the the internal piping works well and would love to get your perspective on where are those areas right now across the industry so i'll ask you to kind of think outside of of the palo alto networks perspective but just classes of tools classes of integration types of apis that right now are still fairly problematic in other words i'd love to be able to integrate x and y they just don't work well together or the industry hasn't cracked or solved a problem uh, that allows us to kind of do more deeper, more um, high fidelity integrations that really do kind of allow for some of these systemic responses that you're describing. Yeah. So, so great question. So I think the main issue is like, you can't really solve it on the product side because even like it was like products before, how do you fix it? Log into the UI and then that's not working. Let's create an yeah. API, and then they hit an API, and then you realize, you know, it wasn't a rich API. So for the most part, everything you want to do, it, you couldn't do through the API, and then you realize you could do it through the API three years later. But then you had to write this deep integration, and the problem is the security engineer had to run the integration, and he or she left, and then suddenly everything breaks down. So now you have, you have a whole security team of integration engineers and SOEs, and it's just total chaos across the board. Yeah. So, that's that's just the current way it is. I, I think you know the good thing about this is, um, that the, uh, and I think it was maybe yourself that mentioned earlier on. Basically, like there's pockets of excellence there. So if you look at what what basically platforms a service, if you look at like you know you look at basically at basically like serverless and communications and compute across the board. If you want to, a lot of what you want to do in security now is basically you can point it at AWS or Azure, GCP, or Alibaba, and if you have the right security tools in place. 
AWS is going to play nice. So in other words, you can say, by the way, shut down or basically enable that S3 encryption, shut down that EC2 instance across the board, basically change the security proof from there, change Route 53. In other words, basically, it's there, there's a common because basically it's because it's cloud because it's homogeneous across the board, then it means that you can very easily you can define certain form factions that you want to run automatically in the cloud across the board. So no longer mm -hmm. do you need to basically the, because you no longer need to get those thousands of servers communicating with each other because that's already done. The platform's already done. AWS, Azure GCP does a um, great job of just communicating back and forth. And all you've got to do is put the security toolkit on top of that. So now you're telling the infrastructure what to do. And for the most part, like it's it, everything is codified across the board. So you can yeah. do 100 functions in AWS, 100 functions in AWS or GCP, and no human needs to touch any of those services. So if I look at where the shining light is happening, I think without a doubt is cloud. I think cloud, I wouldn't say cloud is as secure as, as on-prem. I would say cloud is exponentially more secure than on-prem. Could not agree more. I, I actually uh, gave a talk on that in 2012, talking about why the cloud is ultimately more secure than doing things on-prem. You know, so so, and it's only accelerated since then. I bet you they threw you out of the room. They threw tomatoes at you. I was thinking the same. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> you know what, uh, I know. I know. I would if I was in that room. I think they throw tomatoes at Matt all the time, anyway. Regardless, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. But but as a uh, ex Teamster, local 481. I, I welcome that uh, rigorous debate. <laughs> oh, uh, well, I can mess with you on that after, after that one. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the, the great thing is like cloud is exponentially more secure. Because like, yes, the, the classic example would be, oh, by the way, we've got a vulnerability. And then you go to BC, you go to your internal team and say, oh, by the way, you guys, you scanned your environment and there's a MySQL application vulnerability, you got to fix it. And they're like, sure, we'll fix it. But the problem is, we're on two versions behind, and then we're relying on Java, which is like one version behind, and then all these configurations are behind, and there's app dependencies. And right, well, like long story short, are you, are you gonna do it? Oh, yeah, sure, we'll do it. When can you do it? We don't know. So eventually, like it takes basically, it could take six months or a year to fix those critical vulnerabilities that we all know about, and that's pretty common across the board. And eventually, yeah. services just can't punch. And then you turn around and say, well, what about AWS and GCP? Well, they've already done it. And you're like, wow, how did they do that? Yeah. How much it is everything is the same across the board. Everything yep. is in the API. They can rev it. It's like a container. Containers are are beautiful because the container model basically is is instead of being worried about the box in the corner, it's it's a federal for the most part. Basically, you, you shut it down, you rev the image itself, reset the container, and then the container comes up patched across the board. Like we use twist lock for that basically. Anything that goes into container, it has to be twist locked from there. And then from that end, that's pre-run to make sure it's secure when it's run. And then when it's running, it's basically that it's, it's not doing anything unusual with the activity from there. So I think the cloud basically adds tremendous benefit from there, purely on the basis that you can move, you can move way, you can move a thousand times faster than you could ever move on-prem. You can do an awful lot more with an awful lot less resources. The only problem is it moves so fast. So because it moves so fast, now it doesn't become a basic controls issue, it becomes an agility issue. If it becomes an agility issue, then your security tools, your processes, your people have to keep up. And again, as you can see, from your, it keeps on going back to automation. So it's like, you know, you go to the cloud and you solve one problem, but now you have another problem, agility, everything is moving. People are moving from shipping code every three years or every year to every 10 minutes to every minute across the board. And because of that agility factor, 
you've got to automate every single response. Everything. On board. Yes. Um, I want to make an interesting comment and I guess maybe turn it into a question. I feel like um, uh, bad actors out there are also seeing that and they're taking advantage of these technologies too to develop new attack vectors, to scale out, you know, the uh, level of attack, right? To get more resources to truly be able to get inside and go whatever it is they're after, which is usually, you know, your data, your intellectual property. How do, how do we get ahead of that, right? How do we deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a difficult one because again, it's like we're using engineering and ops are using agility, but they're also using agility. So everything we're using they're, all, they're, like, they're also using that. So now they know they see it's cloud, so it's open. Well, perfect. Now it's APIs. They know how the APIs work across the board. Now they know it's homogenous for the most part, basically. And now they know basically how, they, if they can infect server one, they can also do the same thing on server two across the board. And then it's also basically like, you know, let's say if they, if they attack an instance of Workday or Salesforce, Salesforce and they work out how to change the payroll before the end of the month, and they can do that for one customer, within this 15 or the 1,000 customers, they can try that right. board. So right. the issues, and then it's automated. So it's like, you know, typical issues of AWS. What's the biggest issue? Biggest issue is going down to the old, old issue of passwords. So let's call them like AWS keys now. So somebody writes basically, somebody takes a AWS key, dumps it on their laptop from there, then forgets that they've got a private, you know, a public GitHub repository, dumps it up there, keys there, now it's in a public one and you've got basically India or China or Ireland or Ukraine or wherever else scanning 24 <laughs> seven, they'll find it generally within six or seven minutes. And, and as you see these instances occurring, they'll find it within six minutes and then it's not six minutes, scratch my head, does this work? It's six minutes. You can see it, they're in, bang. And suddenly they've authenticated from that end. And then they'll do a list on S3 and then they'll start doing a get and then they'll do so within literally about 10 seconds, you'll see a hundred different attack vectors happening purely because of the fact that basically is that they know the environment almost better than, than, than us across this board because like they're continuously trying to break into it and they've automated their attacks. So they yes. know it works for Acme 1, it's going to work for Acme 2. So the yeah. problem with that then is now we need to start building like security tools whereby let's not basically focusing on detection, like the old days when we bought, like, oh, guys, let's go out and buy IDS, because IDS is such a good idea, sort of thing like that. So we bought IDS, and then we detected, but we didn't do anything with it. So now we've got to really focus in on the prevention component of that. So it, once they're in itself, is what are the preventive com components in there? And if you don't have a preventive component, have a containment component itself. So contain them within that environment from there. So once they try to move laboratory, they can't, because they can't get outside that BPC. If from the big kind morning sort of thing, they start kicking that off, but it's contained because you put a threshold, you can only spend up to like five or $10,000. So I, I think an awful lot more focus needs to be on, uh, on again, going back to automation, but an awful lot needs to be focusing on basically the prevention and the containment component of that. Because the detection component, it's not working because most breaches occur, you find out about a year and a half later across the board. And by that, it's everything is gone. It's been gone for like a year and a half. If you can put in simple preventive controls, preventive are very difficult to do because once they're in, they're in. It's the containment component of that. It's like, let, let them come in, but lock them in a room so they can only do so much, so much damage across the board. Mm -hmm. Reduce the blast radius. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And that's... That, 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 that's always that 
the core difficulty from there. But again, it comes down to basically it's automation is our friend, the platform is our friend from there. If everything is the same, it's our, it's our friend. But we've seen basically when it comes to humans and like even human viruses, because everyone is the same sort of thing, if there's one virus and infection, basically it spreads across the board. Yeah. And that's always what that main issue is because everything is so vanilla across the board on the technology stack. The same thing as well as if I have a compromise for one iPhone, then it's going to work on billions or hundreds of millions of iPhones around the world itself. And therefore it's extremely valuable from there. And same thing as well as, and, and oftentimes basically it comes down to things of like, like, is it, did they hack in because AWS made a mistake? Probably not very, very rarely. Uh, yeah. 90%, 9.99%. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's the misconfiguration and the misconfigurations. It's tough to do cloud because people are using to ASPs and you own the boxes and you pick up the phone and you roar at them if they didn't secure that service. And now you can't do that because now you've moved to the cloud and for the racing model, you now need to manage X, Y, Z. And then you kind of get it, but not really. And then you want to get a person who can manage AWS and GCP. And that's extremely difficult to get the people to do that and to be certified. And then the problem is once they ha you hire them, you say, what do you need to secure? And then you're like, well, you need to secure our environment. And the next question is, how big is our environment? And says, well, we've got 5,000 AWS accounts. Like, wow, well, what do we do from there? And it's like, for the 5,000 accounts, do you retrospectively go back and fix those technical debt, which may take years, or do you stop the bleeding from there? So it's very, you know, it's very, very, very nuanced in relation to like yeah. configurations and service. We can do the right thing going forward, but if a company is older than one or two years, there's going to be a lot of technical debt out there because we all know coming out of out of the out of the gate, very few organizations did a really good job of. Of, of cloudifying that. But the good thing is now we're starting to build a security toolkit to like look at those environments, scan them, and at least come up with the results for like, is this secure or is this insecure? So in other words, we've got the visibility component of that. And now we need to lock down basically like that containment component, that that prevention control of that. Um, so it's basically we can, we'll never keep them out across the board, but we, we, A, we want to make it as difficult as possible for them to get in. And then B, once they're in, you really want to make it restricted whereby there's not an awful lot that you contain them. They'll own X, but they won't own like the kingdom across the board. Right. right. You, you've Back given us a lot to think about there, Niall. I would, I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of scared now. <laughs> 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 I was excited there about the cloud and then, and then now I'm like, oh no, it's uh, it's it's understanding the uh, demarcation, right? The uh, demarcation of security responsibility, right? In the cloud, your Amazon, your GCP, right? They're responsible for securing their infrastructure. But once you step in, that's your responsibility, right? So as long I think as you understand that and uh, you go in with your eyes open, uh, most customers should be fine. They can call us for help with that. We can certainly do that. Excellent. Empirical data indicating the opposite. I'm actually cautiously optimistic because with these tools and platforms and the emphasis, I think across our profession on how do we automate and respond in kind of machine time. Um, this leads me to believe ultimately, I think, we're, you know, we're going to get closer to parity with adversaries. It's still going to be literally an arms race. That will, that dynamic will never end but we're not gonna be going into battle on horseback versus tanks. We're gonna be going into <laughs> battle effectively kind of similarly armed. If we're using these capabilities, especially around like XOR and, and the ability to automate responses to identifiable or machine learned 
classes of events, I think is, is something we should all be cautiously optimistic for. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And often it just comes down to the fundamentals. Like if you're going to the cloud, understanding to your point, like what's that DMARC across the board? Yeah. What are the tools and technologies you deploy? What's the base configuration? What's the kind of response from that end? And then it's kind of the core, like the primitives, the fundamentals from there. It's like, like if you're in the cloud and you're not deploying MFA, you're going to get old. Zero. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, you know, it's like to say, like, it's all open, but is there certain accounts that you want to put in source of people's restrictions? So they need to be behind maybe Prisma access or something else. So you make it, you just don't steal the GCP key or AWS key. You make it much more difficult for them to get in. But a lot of this can ties into like, you know, like a containment point of view is like if someone steals that key and that key is admin, it's a primitive account, then they're in from that end. So how do you get IAM and how do you tie IAM into, into least privilege? And the good thing about this is, is, is to your point, there's a lot of tools and methodologies uh, evolving. I mean, one of the ones I'm really interested in is, is like IAM. So yeah. I'm a huge believer, like basically like past behavior predicts predicts future behavior. So if you've got like tens of thousands of accounts there and they're all primitives, like now you have an issue because you can't ping tens of tens of thousands of people uh, because it's like, how much permission do you need? And they're like, well, it was all sort of thing. And you're just like the owner and editor. But it's pretty easy now, basically, through GCP and AWS is you simply, you have the ability, you can go back across those accounts and let's say account one, uh, which is an editor right account. And you can say basically for that editor account, Show me basically everything that that account, so first of all, you said, take 10,000 accounts, tell me ones that haven't logged in in the last 90 days. And then a lot of them haven't done. Now you're from 10,000 down to maybe 2,000. And then for 2,000, you look at those and say, for the last 90 days, basically, tell me basically for those ones, basically, what privileges they use in the last 90 days. Now done. And then you can come up with basically for that, for account one, account one doesn't need editor. It just accesses these two APIs. Then you basically right size the permissions automatically. Account one is done, and then you can do account two. So by simply looking at what their past behavior was, it's a very strong prediction of basically what they're going to access in the future. And I think one of the big things is is, is really kind of tying down to like the IAMs tying into permissions, the groups itself, because we all have the tendency of like of, of creating accounts and giving it too many permissions from that end, and that's great because it works. But then the problem is it, it inhibits security. So I think security professionals are really starting to think about it in the right way. Um, how do we lock down? How do we secure the cloud? How do we do the right tools? How do we do the right platforms and automations? Uh, and certainly we're seeing a lot of our customers really pushing into like the Prisma SaaS, the Prisma cloud model, and that how do I get visibility and how do I get secure of that? And I think fundamentally, again, it's basically the cloud has the potential to be like exponentially more secure uh, than on-prem because we've, we've all come from um, we've all come from on-prem land, and we all know that it was it was it was like dinosaur land whereby we could never really change anything. The beauty thing about the cloud is you can change everything, but for everything you do change, it obviously has a, it obviously has a consequence. <laughs> yeah. Well, Cole, Niall, you you did not disappoint. I I greatly appreciate uh, you taking the time to get on our Technology and Things podcast today. Uh, big thank you to David Kalorowski and Matt Stamper as well. Um, Thank you, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Look forward to uh, getting you out with a customer sometime. So uh, thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Be well. For your chance to win an Alien Amplify Wi-Fi 6 router, 
please go to evotech.com slash TNT28 and enter the code ALIEN before October 2nd, 2020. Thank you for listening to another edition of Technology and Things with your host, Paul Ferraro, and guest hosts, Matt Stamper and David Kolarowski. We'll see you next time.